welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Mo patients, mo problems. Today, we're going to talk about IVF conversion rate and the six areas that increase it or decrease it, depending on if you're investing in it or neglecting it. So we're going to lay those out for you in order of importance. This is the Fertility Bridge episode where we go over our system and our methodology for doing that. But you can apply some of it right now. And I have Stephanie, who's our director of client success, Stephanie Linder's back on with me to go over these six different areas and to talk about IVF conversion rate on the whole. The last episode got a lot of traction. So if you have particular questions, go ahead and send them to us. We can use that for future content. And if you really disagree about something, especially the part with physician presentation. Let me know that. I will happily have someone on the show that has a counterpoint of view. We can't tell people how to act as clinicians. We're just sharing with you the patterns that we see in order of importance. So I hope you get some food for thought and you enjoy this episode on IVF conversion rate. Hey, Steph. Hi, Griffin Jones. I'm looking forward to going into today's conversation because last time we had you on, we were talking about the entire third phase of the fertility patient marketing journey, consult to treatment. That got a lot of opens when we sent the article. A lot of people emailed us and wanted to know more. So we've got a little bit more information today. We're zooming in specifically to one of the KPIs that impacts consult to treatment, and that is IVF conversion rate, the percentage of patients that move on to IVF conversion. And part of the reason why that move on to IVF, that is, and part of the reason why we've zoomed in on this so much in the last two years or so is because of a phenomenon that we noticed as people are getting busier. And uh, I, <laughs> I'm calling it Griff's Law for now because Oh, it's like, I noticed that and I wanted to name it something. And I wanted to name something Griff's Law. When I figure something out that's cooler than that, it's not going to be called that anymore, Steph. But for the moment, what is Griff's Law? Essentially, with large new patient increase, we see IVF conversion rate decrease. IVF conversion rate decreases with large new patient increases. And lots of people are seeing that right now. So even though people are seeing IVF go up as well, because they're seeing so many new patients come in, many IVF centers aren't even noticing that their conversion rate is actually going down. So if you are among the cohort that is seeing lots of new patients right now, this might be the episode for you, especially because as we zoom into IVF conversion rate, there's six different points of the fertility patient marketing journey that affect IVF conversion rate. And when we were doing this stuff, I really struggled because I wanted to present it in the clearest way possible. So I thought of maybe ordering these in chronological order because mm -hmm. some of them precede the patient even coming into the office. But ultimately we decided that 
we wanted to present it in order of importance. So in order of importance, what are the six major things that impact IVF conversion rate? Yeah, so it all starts with how the physician presents the info, the physician presentation. The second most uh, important is how you're following up after the consult, so really the post-consult follow-up. The third is educating your patients about how they pay for treatment and how they finance it and the options available to them. After that, it's all about how do you educate the patient before they walk in the door. So that's number four, your pre-education content. Number five, it's how do you share it with them prior to coming into the consult? So we call that the welcome sequence. And then number six is your patient support. How do you offer ancillary services or tell your patients about those services that support them through the uh, fertility treatment journey? So we're going to get into these six in greater detail. I think there's a few profiles of fertility center that shouldn't invest in an IVF conversion strategy. That's folks that have just started up. If, you, if you're a brand new center, focus on getting new patients in. If you're super high growth, focus on getting new patients in. If you were one of the centers that was doing really well for a while, and then you got a little bit older and some younger competition moved in and you didn't invest a lot in business development, and then you started to decrease new patients, go back to focusing on new patients. But I'd say there's at least three profiles of fertility center that should invest in IVF conversion rate strategy first. Who are they? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's the people that are maxed out with your new patients, but are still short on their IVF retrieval goals and retrieval capacity at their lab. The second would be folks that have never actually done marketing or business development in the past. So those folks sometimes talk about for this type of strategy, just because if you've never invested in marketing before, if you were one of these centers that was spending half a percent of gross revenue on business development, it's from a different era. And to get you into the era where you're competing with Wall Street back clinics or Silicon Valley back ventures, going right into a marketing or business development program for many might just seem alien. So why is it that we recommend an IVF conversion rate strategy for them some of the time? Really because of it's the ROI you can see on it. If you start this early and in the right cadence, you can actually pay yourself back within three months of inception of starting the, this conversion rate program. Okay. So folks that are already maxed with new patients, but short of IVF capacity, that, that's a no brainer. Those that have not invested much in marketing or biz dev because the ROI can be a lot quicker. It's a lot closer to the sale. And then third, who's that? The people that are ready to sell the equity in their practice, but we put a timeline on it usually within one year. Cause if you're going to sell further out in the future, then it's really about adding value to your brand, to your group before you sell. But if you're going to sell within less than a year, then, well, you're not going to do a rebrand. There's maybe not a lot you would do in other parts because it would take too long to see the, the return. But less than a year, we're comparing it more to like an apartment complex, like an income real estate venture. And what's the analogy there, Steph? Yeah, actually, when we talked about this before, I thought it was a really good analogy. So if you have a hundred unit apartment complex, even just increasing the rent by about $50 a month, the financial benefit isn't just that $5,000 in monthly additional revenue. It's talking about increasing the total value of the property when you go to sell it. And your practice is very, very similar when you talk about increasing that conversion to treatment percentage. 
in our field, we always use the EBITDA. We don't use capitalization rate. That is for real estate. But I agree. That's a really good analogy to use because if I just get this conversion rate up and we are a machine that that converts more people to treatment, even if I'm just showing a six-month bump, that's a lot better than being flat or or certainly decreasing, and it can help in the sale. We've had people on the show talk about different yeah. perspectives on that. I promise you, it's always better to add value, and that's one where you can do it more quickly, and it's a lot more closer to sale. So, okay, so we've got the three folks that probably want to focus on IVF conversion rate. We got the six things that impact it. Now, I, I want to just do our disclaimer that we always do whenever we talk about IVF conversion, Stephanie, which is we're not clinicians. We're not <laughs> saying that every person should move to IVF. We're also not Wall Street people. We don't own equity in any fertility center. We're not trying to get a certain value back. We don't get a commission on that. We're just trying to help people reach their goals. So we know that 100% is never going to be the number. We just want to make sure that people aren't that aren't moving on to treatment. It's not because we weren't clear or we weren't helpful. Right. I think that's a good disclaimer. So we've ranked physician presentation at the top of our six things that impact IVF conversion rate. Why and what is it? So really it's, I would say it's the greatest variable in the conversion to treatment is being the provider. So there is just this innate nature that some physicians have that makes them just a little bit better and moving some patients along to treatment than others. So we can't tell you exactly how to do your job, but what we really can say and encourage is that be strong in your convictions and what you share with patients as the best next step. Patients come to you for advice, you're the expert, and being strong in that makes a huge difference in how quickly and who, how many patients actually convert to treatment. I wasn't totally ready to put physician presentation as the <laughs> most important, but then something changed my mind. You know what it was? It was you and the other fertility bridge people. After we have a doctor that is really clear and just really present, let's say you and the other fertility bridge people will say, I wish she was my doctor. I wish, I wish she was my doctor. And yeah. Oh, I can see. How I know who you're thinking of right now as we're talking. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. The most recent example, but then sure enough, though, you look at that doctor's numbers versus another doctor. They're different. Yeah. And it's not even about being overly aggressive with it. I think some people assume that, but it's really, there's still often a compassion and kindness, but they're just so confident. And this is what you should do that you buy in and you just want them to be your physician and you trust them with everything you have. And it's really hard to teach. I've only known maybe one or two that were really aggressive and it, their conversion rate was not good. The folks whose conversion rate is really good is the folks that are just super clear. They don't give the patient a lot to be paralyzed by analysis. And again, this is where a physician could say, Griffin, Stephanie, you're not doctors. You don't know what it's like in there. And fair enough. If you have a counterpoint, you're perfectly welcome to come on the show and talk about your counterpoint. I'm not saying that you, one person needs to present a certain way. We're just sharing with you the pattern of people that are really good at converting to treatment. And we've learned a lot from them. So when we used to do our goal diagnostic, for example, used to leave the strategy a lot more open-ended until we actually went in and did the blueprint. And now 
It's like, well, we know it's one of six to eight problems. So we're diagnosing that in the goal diagnostic. And then we're saying it's this blueprint you need. And since we've been doing it that way, people just find it a lot more clear. We're still being as helpful and genuine as we were before, but in our goal to not push people into something that they didn't, that they might not have been ready for, or we left it way too open-ended and and now having taken page out of these doctors book, we're helping people a lot faster. There's no pushing. It's just saying, okay, you don't have to do it with us, but this is the strategy that you need. And we see the same thing happening with these docs that are just giving the patients a lot easier of a path to begin in their minds. Yep. There's a lot less for the patient to think about too. Okay. So we've, we've had the patient come in again, we're not going in chronological order. We are going in order of importance, but we've got physician presentation as the most important. What's next? So the second most important is the post-consult follow-up. And so when this is done in a, in the right systemized way after the initial consultation, it's one of the quickest ways to convert more patients to IVF cycles. And so this is to address something. This is a term you came up with. So I came up with Griff's law. We haven't called this Stephanie's phenomenon yet, but what do you yeah. call this phenomenon? Yeah, I'm waiting for something a little bit cooler to name after <laughs> myself, but I named this uh, the post-consult black hole, which is patients come into the consult, they seem excited and ready for treatment. And then you essentially just, they get a few tests done or you really just don't hear from them again after consult and you don't really know why. And that consult can be the initial consult or it could be the follow-up visit. We do recommend follow-up visits, but we're not going to get into that today. We're going to talk about the follow-up after the initial consult or the follow-up visit, which wherever the drop-off was, because that follow-up does three things. Yeah, so it's really supporting patients in their journey. It's assuring and giving them the confidence that you are the best choice for them in their fertility care, especially in a world where there's lots of options for different fertility clinics. And three, it's cueing the decision. It's giving them a final reminder that, hey, I need to make a decision and I need to do this quickly. None of those things is push. None of those things is force. When you follow up with people, you are supporting them. There's so much uncertainty and you're assuring them. And when you're cueing the decision, that's not forcing them to make the decision. You can't force anybody to make a decision. They've got a number of decisions going on in their lives. It just cues the decision, meaning this person brings it up with their partner again, as opposed to just letting it go off into the ether forever. And if I can go on a little rant, Steph, now that I'm of this age and have been in the field for the seven years that I've been here, people talk to me, not people in the field, friends. And they tell me things like, yeah, well, we're thinking about it. We're, well, we went for a consult and, you know, we're just kind of still mulling it over. Meanwhile, they want a child in the worst way. And now they're in their mid thirties, late thirties, they keep pushing it off and they're putting themselves in a worse position. It is doing someone a service to cue the decision if you do it the right way. And another sidewall we're here is when Stephanie and I say the patient in most cases, unless we say otherwise, when we're talking in this third phase of the patient journey, we're talking about the patient and their partner. So 
there's two times to follow up that are really critical. What are they? So you want to follow up 30 days after the last consult that you had with a patient or the last touch point that you had with a patient. And this is really crucial because more than likely, unless there's someone that, you know, doesn't ovulate regularly or another clinical reason, by this time, the patients likely had the first day of their period. So if they haven't called you like they were supposed to, to let you know and move forward with the next step, there's likely some reason or some kind of barrier that's preventing them from moving forward with treatment. So 30 days is the first touch point, but the second touch point is 60 days. So essentially those same people that perhaps um, you didn't hear from after 30 days, you want to check back in 60 days, you just want at least two touch points. And, you know, a lot of people think, okay, is this too salesy? Is this, is this, they think about it as negative because healthcare providers aren't always necessarily used to, to marketing. And what we've seen is actually exactly the opposite. And I love sharing the story because it is just so positive. We had a client that actually followed up with their patients twice, did the 30 day and 60 day. And when they did get a hold of them at the 60 day follow-up, the patient actually got pregnant naturally. And so that's the reason they didn't you know, contact them again. But turns out the patient was technically pregnant at one of the early appointments or when they made the first appointment and had named or decided to name their child after the physician, the middle name at least. And so the patient was super appreciative and loved the kind of support and care the clinic offered, even though they weren't moving forward with them. And that kind of, you know, word of mouth or the reputation that that starts to build in the community is just unparalleled. Like there's no marketing that can really do what that phone call just did. And I just want to share that example because that is really like the worst case that we've seen come out of these kind of follow-ups, which is really an amazing best case. That's, that's one, it's a very useful touch point on behalf of the center to do because it shows that they care. It's also great feedback to get, you don't yeah. get that feedback if you don't do it. So we have a packing order of who should be doing the follow-up in a perfect world. And that's why there's a hierarchy because if you can't do it, at the top in the perfect world, then you move on to the next one. So how does that hierarchy flow of who should be doing the follow-up? Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever 
and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. So we have a packing order of who should be doing the follow-up in a perfect world. And that's why there's a hierarchy because if you can't do it at the top in the perfect world, then you move on to the next one. So how does that hierarchy flow of who should be doing the follow-up? Yeah, of course. So the first, the physician always should be in a perfect world doing the follow-up. Your patients chose you as their physician, or at least for the initial consult, they want to hear from you. And it means a lot if the physician is calling. Of course, that can't always happen. So the second second point in the hierarchy would be any kind of advanced provider, your NPs, your PAs. Uh, the third would be a nurse. And then after that would be MA, medical assistant. And then last but not least would be your front desk staff or any of your staff that has the capability to answer at least some basic questions, but not get too clinical. So somebody is listening to this and they're like, okay, so what you're saying is front desk staff. <laughs> they're skipping right over the others or maybe an MI. If, if one of your clinical staff can't do it, that's fine. That's why we have the hierarchy. It is dramatically better than nothing. Perhaps the only profile of center that does even have the time to do this are those that were doing really well for a while and aren't. And then if that is the case, use your physician's to that advantage. But even if it's somebody on the front desk, if it's a new patient navigator, if it's an MA, then that's much better than not following up with. I'd also um, add though, it's also an amazing opportunity for your recently graduated fellows or physicians that are moving to a new geography to build up their practice and their name while they have a little bit more time in the beginning. This could be a great, great way to build that practice. So this is useful for everyone, but it's especially useful for those physicians that aren't as good at converting people to treatment. Again, we're not here to say what physicians should be doing what. We're just saying that if you are one of the physicians that's a little bit less direct, one thing I do recommend, Stephanie, is that physicians take the big five personality tests. Sometimes that's called canoe. Sometimes it's called ocean. See where you are on agreeableness people that are real high on agreeableness might have a harder time being as direct because they want the patient to feel like they have options. People who are lower on agreeableness might need to do some sort of empathic training. And Dr. Ali Domar talks about that. But if you're real high, you can run into the other problem, which is not being as direct. And if that's the case for you, this type of follow-up and the other things that we're going to talk about are even more important. So we've got physician presentation, we've got follow-up, then what about finance and payment? What's that like? It's all about the money. We found that this obstacle is really not just about patients not being able to afford it. While that's true, that's just a small percentage of this. It's patients just don't know if they should spend their 20,000 on IVF or just a few thousand on IUI and which way to go. It's how do they afford it? What kind of programs do they use? And how can they maximize their different benefits, mainly through insurance, to make sure as much is covered as possible? So when we say it's a small percentage, what we mean is that Dr. Domar has research that shows 42% of patients say that cost is the highest barrier. That's in line with what we've seen. And that in and of itself is just one thing. It's, it does not necessarily mean that the patient has no way of being able to 
pay for it. So you break what the practice needs to do to help people find out what they need to do to pay for it, how they can be able to afford it into staff and materials. What role does staff play in financial education? Yeah. So, I mean, your staff, essentially the person that answers the phones, your front desk, and all your financial counselors are essentially the first line of defense in helping your patients with this understanding the finance and payment dilemma. So you want to make sure that training all of your staff, those key at the front line of defense, essentially, make sure they are trained with specific scripts and specific cadence on how to answer questions about pricing insurance? Do, do they know how to explain the difference between in-network and out-of-network? That's one of the biggest ones that we hear that people cannot properly explain. The common paying for treatment questions. And so they need to know the script, what to say, the tone, how they actually say it, and then the cadence and the order and when they say it. Okay. So you've got a well-trained staff, then what do they need to have both when they meet with patients to be able to give them afterward and for patients to be able to see even before they come through? So what they should be giving them in the meeting is really easy to understand financial materials that decode essentially some of the common acronyms. Way too often we see these price lists that have about 10 or more acronyms with you know line item and patients just don't understand why ICSI is separated from everything else. So really making sure those materials are as easy and straightforward as possible will really help with your conversion rate. But also sending certain items and some what we call like pre-education, sending certain materials ahead of time will really help essentially persuade the patient, which we'll be getting into a little bit later as well. But you want to be making sure to send videos where they get to know your counselors, get to know your staff, get to know how to pay for treatment ahead of time. So they're not surprised when they come into the initial consult and have that conversation for the first time. And this is where good creative comes into play. So if you're looking at the fertility patient marketing journey, every single segment on all four journeys is an opportunity for a good creative. You don't need to do materials the same way that you've always done them, the same way that everyone else is doing. That's where good creative comes in to make it something that people actually, one, want to read and two, understand. And that's our segue into pre-education content. This is one of the six areas that really impact IVF conversion rate. It is an umbrella term. And when we made these six, we did overlap some of them. You could say that the welcome sequence is the activation of the pre-education content or that financial materials go into pre-education, persuasion. They do, but pre-education is a good way of thinking of all of the content that you use, no matter how it's distributed, that gets patients to have a baseline of understanding and rapport before they ever come in. That's what we want to do with pre-education. We don't want the patient to be a deer in the headlights when they're talking with you. We want to give them the information they need to know when they need to know it. And so they have an idea of what's going to come next. So they receive information more readily. They feel more comfortable with you and they're less likely to have barriers that shouldn't be there when they are ready to move forward to treatment. This is where you can really get creative. And we've done so much content on content that we're not going to do it today, getting into this pre-education persuasion more deeply. But pre-educating patients before they come into the door is really essential, not just at the finance and payment stage, but for the entire 
IVF conversion goal. Now we're talking about one way of delivering it, and that's the welcome sequence. Talk to us about that. So essentially the welcome sequence is what happens before the patient gets into the initial consult. What are you sending them? How are you making sure that they are pre-educated and essentially are looking forward to treatment? And so what we usually see in a welcome sequence now is just, hey, here's how to set up your portal and here's a form to fill out your medical history and get records from your OB. But it needs to be so much more than that. And so there's a variety of ways you can send the welcome messages, but they have to include four key components. The one is a sincere welcome from the physician, which is sending expectations and then preparing the patient from what's to come. And it's crucial that this is from their specific physician. The second is a lot of the components of what we talked about around finance and payment pre-education, really just making sure the patient, patient understands how they're going to be able to pay for treatment and what their options are. The third would be uh, a patient testimonial. So it's a way the patient can see themselves and others feel that the clinic and the other patients are relatable and really a way to encourage the patient when this is a time that they may be getting cold feet because this is one you're going to be sending a little bit closer to the initial consult. And the last but not least, number four would be just a simple reminder of the upcoming appointment and a confirmation, but still know, let the patient know that you guys are thrilled and, and prepared and ready to see this patient very soon. A good welcome sequence really helps with cancellation rates too, because you're nurturing them in this way before they come in, getting them excited, assuaging their concerns. And assuaging concerns is the name of the game when it comes to our sixth area for positively increasing IVF conversion rate. That's patient support. Before I turn it back over, Steph, I want to talk about why this is included in IVF conversion. Because when I first entered the field, I would notice people leaving negative reviews, or if they had something bad to say about the client, I did the clinic, I did some research of looking at positive and negative reviews. And it really does matter. Someone is much more likely to leave a negative review if they didn't have a positive outcome. Well, go figure. Well, I wanted to unpack that some more. Partly because when they see baby, 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 and miracle, 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 and we've got the best success rates, and people don't always say it that way, but sometimes they also don't not say it that way. And prospective patients can fill in the blanks with their mind then they have a really high expectation. And that only expectation is one clinical outcome. It's one healthy baby at the end. And I know we've gotten really good with success rate, Stephanie, but they're still not a hundred percent. And they're still, it's still really high for somebody who's spending tens of thousands of dollars of their own money, who's putting so much of their emotional focus and energy into the process. And so if the only outcome that we can give them is a clinical outcome that we really can't guarantee, then we're often setting ourselves up for failure. And so we want to at least be giving the prospective patient, the new patient, as much value as we can outside of the clinical outcome so that there are other things to delight them with. And then I saw some research from Dr. Ali Domar, that shows that post-consult, only 32% of respondents that are not seeking treatment reported that their healthcare professional offered supportive services, as compared to 61% 
of respondents that were seeking treatment. So we see more patients continuing with treatment when they've been recommended support. And that comes in three different categories, which are so you have your support groups. These are your resolves, whether they're a national or your local, more independent support groups. Number two is your med- mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists. And then the third is a, an umbrella term as well, but it's more wellness support. So that's including a variety of different things, but I would say the three most important are your, your nutritionists, your acupuncturists, and some uh, a little bit of information about exercise. And when you have those networks to be able to refer to and those professionals to whom you can prefer, how do you let the patient know about them? So it's definitely possible that you can put some of those sources on your website, especially I think in the exercise or more just general information about maybe eating or yoga or anything like that. But I With more of your wellness professionals or mental health professionals, there may be so many people that you refer to or trust that it just doesn't make sense to put everyone on your website. So it's always helpful to have an internal document that you can post in your patient portal, email it to the patients as requested. So you kind of have a go-to resource that could say, hey, if you ask a question about this, this is where you go. And that will also help build often some of your referral patterns because clinics actually Actually, on average, see about five to ten percent of their referrals come from the three things we just mentioned. So the overall wellness community. This is an area where you and I don't totally agree about putting all of the potential refers on the website on a material. Let's hash it out right here for the inside reproductive health audience. Why not? So from my opinion, especially when I see in our clients in bigger markets, take a New York, Chicago, San Francisco, when you have, let's say acupuncturists where there's 20, 30 people that are in your referral network and just putting three or four could actually be more harm than good and show bias. I think it makes sense to keep some of that stuff more internal because the second someone sees that you, they're not up on your website, they might get pretty pissed at you. Well, so there's two points to that. One, why not put all 20 or 30 on there? I think it's too overwhelming. I think I you need. I think maybe you you direct to a couple that are, if you're in person with somebody. But my philosophy on a B to C content, which is essentially what you're doing here in a B to B strategy, or maybe that's flipped, is feature everybody. And then your second point was, was it, well, it rubs somebody the wrong way if they're not on there. I think it's a great problem to have. If you forgot somebody and somebody said, well, why, why wasn't I on there? It's like, we would love to have you on there. And then that's a social media strategy right there, giving every single one of those people love over time. And if somebody says, why didn't you do a feature on us? We would love to, Brian. When can we set something up? Well, there's a lot of points to make to counter that. I think to have your patient go through 40 different acupuncturists and call each one is not something they're going to do. So then A, you start having people argue with you about who's up top or who's placed first on the list because they're more likely to get called. It's just something that really can snowball. So I believe it should be more internal on certain things and you post it in the portal, your nurses can just refer to it. You don't have to worry about it. I know that most of the clients and most of the listeners are going to agree with you because they don't want to deal with that. Some people are going to see 
Yeah, I think that's a great problem to have. So you've just heard it, right? That you've just heard the pros and cons. You decide with how you distribute your patient support information. So in summary, there's four key performance indicators that drive IVF volume. IVF conversion rate is just one of them. That's what we talked about today. The things that impact IVF conversion the most are physician presentation, post-consult follow-up, finance and payment, persuasion, pre-education, welcome sequence, and patient support. There's a few different profiles for whom that's the best strategy to go to first. If you would like our help in deciding if that's for you of what's missing from yours. If you're not converting as many people, we do that in the goal diagnostic. It's cheap. It's easy. You get to meet with Stephanie and I for two different meetings and we get to talk about this. We can spend the whole time talking about IVF conversion rate. If you want sign up for the goal diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. Stephanie, thanks for unpacking this with me and look forward to having you back on to go into some of these in even greater detail in the future. Yeah, I look forward to more debates. <laughs> Come prepared. I'll try. Thanks, Steph. Bye. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.